You're listening to Root Cause Remedies, a show that explores environmental justice from right here in Hawaii. I'm Tina Grandinetti, and I'll be your humble host and fellow traveler on this huaka'i to learn more about the issues that affect the lands, waters, and people that sustain us. This week on Root Cause Remedies, we're talking health insurance. Since the pandemic hit the United States in February, as many as 12 million people have lost their health care, a travesty caused by America's reliance on employer-based private health insurance. You lose your job, you lose your insurance, and that's a serious problem during a global public health crisis. Here in Hawaii, more than 40,000 people have lost their private coverage and enrolled in a government plan like MedQuest or Medicaid, but it's likely that thousands more have had trouble getting reinsured. So today we're talking to Ben Sadowski, a researcher with Unite Here Local 5, to talk about the intersections of capitalism, healthcare, and the pandemic. To be honest, I've been dreading this episode because the issue of healthcare seems so complex and intimidating. Terms like HMOs, PPOs, private healthcare, socialized medicine, Medicare for all, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, pre-existing conditions, an overlap of federal programs and state-level programs, it feels like you need to navigate really messy politics just to advocate for what should be a basic human right, access to adequate medical care as a social good. And it's not just about this episode. Your girl has some pretty sketchy medical coverage thanks to our convoluted healthcare system. Until last year, I was living in Australia, a country with universal health care and socialized medicine. And I had gotten permanent residency, which means I got to experience that magical unicorn, free health care for all. And let me tell you, it was so good. No anxiety, no expensive private insurance, no figuring out premiums and benefits and what kinds of coverage you may or may not have. You just know that if you get injured or sick, you're covered. Of course, it's more complex than that, but it was radically different and so much better from what we experience here. So when I moved back home late last year, my main source of income was my PhD scholarship from my university in Australia. And because I only worked part-time as a lecturer at UH, my coverage options here were really expensive. It ended up being cheaper for me to purchase travel insurance from Australia than to get myself covered here in Hawaii. The catch is, when COVID hit, the travel insurance company told me COVID care isn't covered in my plan. So I've been skating on very thin ice, and I'm not alone. Like so many of you, I have a handful of friends who are uninsured right now, and there's something seriously wrong with that picture. No one should have to worry about access to healthcare in a pandemic or otherwise. So today, Ben Sadowski is here to help us make some sense of what's wrong with our healthcare system and what we can do to begin to work towards something better.
Thanks for talking with us. Maybe you can start off just by telling us a little bit about yourself. What kind of work do you do? How did you get involved with the labor movement? I know you work for Local 5. Yeah, I work for Local 5. I've been there about 15 years uh, and I'm the research director there. You know, Local 5 is, of course, a labor union. We're fighting for workers' rights. A lot of people don't really realize that, that unions have research departments and they kind of wonder what that's all about. And mm-hmm. really... The idea is that we are trying to take the the power and the voices of organized workers and figure out where those voices can be used to affect real change. You know, we look into companies that we have to deal with a lot. Mostly it's our employers. And we try to figure out, you know, what are all the things that they need? You know, they need things from the government. They are always trying to reduce their taxes. They're trying to say certain things and deliver certain messages to their shareholders and to their lenders and stuff. These all become audiences of people that we can talk to if we have the right things to say. It, it's not easy for people normally to access these these kinds of systems or even to know like where they're able to provide meaningful input. A lot of what we do is just looking into where, you know, what, what strategies can we use, what tactics can we use to try to basically push companies to treat their workers the way they should, you know, or treat the community the way they should. Uh, so we, we're having you as a guest on an episode about healthcare because as a researcher for Local 5 during the pandemic, you've had to do a lot of research about the healthcare system. Can you kind of explain why you've had to do this and why it's become such a central issue for your members and then by extension by basically so many other working class people in Hawaii during the pandemic? The key thing really is that all of our members and their families need health care. Additionally, about 2,000 of our members work in healthcare statewide, whether it's at Kaiser Permanente or Halinani Rehabilitation Center. But everybody needs healthcare, and it's a central issue because it's really expensive. It has become especially important during this pandemic because, you know, we do have a system of employer-sponsored healthcare. So many people are now either furloughed or, or laid off from work. Suddenly, healthcare is becoming something that a lot of people have less access to. And so we've been trying to figure out how to keep as many people covered as possible. And then there's also, you know, a lot of other work that we're trying to do to figure out what safety standards are necessary and what standards of of healthcare really are necessary to keep people safe, to prevent people from getting COVID and spreading it to their families and their communities, you know, trying to push to actually make those standards be the things that companies have to do. So you mentioned our employer-based healthcare system. And here in Hawaii, we were actually the first state to require employers to provide health benefits. The Hawaii Prepaid Healthcare Act was passed in 1974, and it requires companies with 10 or more employees working at least 20 hours a week to provide basic health care coverage. So it actually goes beyond the Affordable Care Act. And in Hawaii, historically, we're, we've had much better health care coverage than most of the United States. And yet the pandemic has made it very clear that this isn't enough. Can you tell us a little bit about how this kind of employer dependent system makes us vulnerable? That's true. Historically, Hawaii has had a couple of advantages that put people a little bit better off, and I can get into those. But ultimately, the employer-based healthcare system is a problem for several reasons. The number one reason, like I mentioned, is is not everybody works. Civil Beat recently said 40,000 Hawaii residents lost their health insurance coverage during the pandemic. And that was just from numbers that of, of new enrollees on Quest, which is the same as Medicaid. But there's probably actually a lot more who either didn't enroll in any other type of insurance, uh, who went 
present to them the marketplace. So there's that. The big problem, I think, is that employers benefit from being the main source of insurance. It ends up being a tool or almost a weapon that employers can use to threaten their workers with. Wow. You know, having healthcare that's based on your employer makes it really hard if you want to change jobs or even raise issues or fight for better conditions in your job because, you know, everybody who feels that sense that they might lose their job from speaking up, knowing that with the job goes the healthcare and, and right. all these other things is, is really scary and it really gives employers way too much power to kind of silence the voices of their workers. Yeah. I mean, it's like a life for death bargaining chip in some ways. That's, I, I honestly hadn't really thought about that before. Has that come into play in, um, kind of in like contract negotiations and in within the union? Oh, sure. The way our union is set up, we have, and, and some other unions have as well, but but we have a joint employer union health and welfare fund. When we negotiate with employers, what we win is for employers to pay into this fund by each employee's work hours. And the fund then uses that money to pay insurance premiums or to pay claims for workers because that exists in the first place. And because workers have struggled for many years in many rounds of negotiations to, to make sure that that fund was healthy and funded enough. When people were laid off and employers stopped paying in, on their behalf, the fund still has had enough money to cover our members for several months, you know, and it's also something where because we have this fund, we're able to push for the kind of healthcare plans that, that our members need and the, and the kind of features that they need, as opposed to just employees having to accept whatever healthcare plans their employers have. Mm -hmm. Usually there's a few options, but if none of those options includes like coverage for contraception or, you know, other things, there's just no way for them to get it when they're, uh, you know, through their insurance. So it gives us a little bit more power to try to make those decisions independent of, of what just the employers would do. As Local 5 works around the reopening plan, does employer-based healthcare impact whether or not workers are ready to go back to work, whether they feel like they have to? It really does have an impact uh, on workers needing or feeling the need to go back to work in the middle of this pandemic. Many workers feel that it's not safe out there, that their employers in particular are not taking the kind of measures that they need to be taking in order to keep workers safe and to keep them from, from getting COVID. Mm -hmm. And yet, because so many people stand to lose employer-based healthcare the longer they're out of work, and because it's so unaffordable for them to get it in other ways, uh, they really do feel a lot of pressure to go back to work, even if it's not safe for them to do that. It's so twisted because you need to go to work to keep your health insurance during a pandemic, but going to work puts you <laughs> at a higher risk of getting COVID. Yeah, it's a really messed up system. It, it's really backwards. You know, all of the, mm -hmm. the incentives really benefit a powerful few corporations ultimately and, and make it very hard for everybody else. We already know that the U.S. is the only industrialized nation without universal health care. And yet we haven't seen the kinds of political will necessary to meet this very basic need. So who is benefiting from our current system? You mentioned powerful corporations, but maybe specifically in Hawaii, can you give us an idea of the interests that impact this issue? Let me start with the sort of global or the nation, national perspective, I guess. Ultimately, the real entities that profit off the most off of health insurance or um, off of the healthcare system being the way it is are insurance companies, drug companies, and hospitals and providers. Each of them in some way 
makes healthcare a lot more expensive than it has to be uh, and more expensive than it is in other countries. Right. And it really benefits them. And, and that's part of the reason that we don't have it. Insurance companies, drug companies, and hospitals have lobbyists and they spend a lot of money and a lot of time in Washington. I think drug companies alone, they're spending upwards of 200 or $300 million a year, not counting campaign contributions, just to get what they want. And, yeah. you know, the kinds of things that they want are the ability to charge as much as they want to for drugs, you know, the ability to, mm -hmm. to prevent generic competition from reducing prices and stuff like that. And likewise, you know, the insurance companies, they generally don't like the idea of healthcare for all. Their whole profit model is, is based on people paying them premiums and them essentially getting money from everything that they don't pay out. They have a lot of incentive to, for instance, limit the treatments that they authorize yeah. or to charge more in terms of cost sharing, especially for expensive treatments. They can try to pick, cherry pick healthy populations and... and and then just, you know, increasing premiums and deductibles and things like that. Yeah, each of these groups of companies really has its own profit motives. As far as hospitals, there was a, a report that uh, National Nurses United put out in 2017 that's saying hospitals charge 379% more than an item or service costs on average. And so each of those exists to some degree in Hawaii. I mean, the major insurers doing business here would be HMSA and uh, Kaiser. And, you know, both of those are part of much larger national networks, health maintenance organizations or HMOs. Yeah, they cover between the two of them quite a large segment of, of the total market, over 90 percent. Whoa. Yeah. And so, of course, they don't you know, they have no interest in seeing other competition in. They really have no interest in providing services that they are not absolutely ob obliged to provide or, or services that are not profitable for them. And Kaiser is a nonprofit, right? Or not-for-profit. They're run as nonprofits, but they very much operate according to a business model and a profit motive. Yeah, it's kind of amazing because for a company that calls itself a nonprofit, Kaiser, they made something like $7.4 billion last year in profits. Wow. Yeah. And they have like over $38 billion of just assets, net assets after all their liabilities and everything. Well, maybe Kaiser can be a little case study for us, like a window into the issues that arise when healthcare is run like a business. Kaiser employees are part of Local 5. So can you give us a little bit of an idea about what Kaiser workers have been experiencing? Yeah, Kaiser workers... You know, have had to struggle like like workers at just about everywhere else over the years to fight off various cost cutting measures. Recently, Kaiser had announced plans that they were going to close the gastrointestinal and um, ambulatory services at their Wailuku clinic on Maui, and they said these services are already being provided at the Maui Memorial Medical Center, which they recently took over the management of after it was privatized or semi-privatized. With that is, it's not really a question of what is in the best interests of the people of Maui, and it's certainly not about what's in the best interests of Kaiser workers. The likelihood is that if that goes through, Kaiser themselves has said they thought about 28 workers would be affected. They would lose their jobs or somebody else. And, you know, it's certainly not the first cost-cutting thing that Kaiser has tried to do. We think it's also bad for the Maui community in general because their solution in terms of providing the same level of care to the island would be to keep 
those same centers at Maui Memorial open later, meaning like people might have to go in if you have mm-hmm. if you have to go in for ambulatory surgery three o'clock in the morning. You know, Kaiser has argued over the years that the Hawaii region of Kaiser Permanente loses money. And Kaiser is they're active in many states. California, of course, is their home base. And it's always been a little bit hard to show exactly. It's just hard to verify because of the way that they work with all these different like sub companies and stuff. But even if we take what they say at face value, really the idea that healthcare always has to be run for profit is part of the problem. And typically when companies talk about cutting costs, which is what Kaiser is talking about, they are typically looking at ways of cutting jobs, cutting benefits, pushing for productivity increases, consolidating operations, because to them, those are the variables that they can control most easily. And even though they're not for profit, You know, Kaiser still acts the same way when it comes to trying to save money. It comes down to numbers on a page for somebody. It's easier to push workers to work for less or or cut operations than to save on things like equipment or electricity or other other kinds of costs. To Kaiser's credit, they do push preventative programs, preventative health measures, which I think is good. They promote generic drugs, which is really important, you know, and there are other things that they've done. So yeah, it's been a struggle. Several years ago, we had a struggle over whether Kaiser was going to continue to fund pensions for new workers the same way that they had been. That's something that we had to, to struggle with them over for months, months and months. And we went on strike over it and everything. And we did win, but it's a constant Okay, let's talk about alternatives, because we're in an election year and we're hearing different agendas addressing this issue. And here, I'm just going to give a tiny explainer to help make sure our audience is all on the same page. There's the free market approach to healthcare in which we purchase it as consumers from private health insurance providers. Then there's the model that was put in place by the Affordable Care Act, or you know what some people call Obamacare. And that tried to address the worst failures of the private market and get more people covered by setting up a system where the government essentially mandated that people buy private insurance, but helped to push prices down by subsidizing the costs of those private insurance plans with public monies. So it sort of alleviated the worst of the private market without disrupting the power of those private companies too much. And then there's Medicare for All, which tries to get at the root of the issue by pretty much taking health insurance out of the private market and instead creating one national healthcare program where everyone is enrolled and has comprehensive coverage with no premiums, no deductibles, just a single national health insurance plan for every single one of us. Can you give us a little bit of an explainer about what each of these models mean for working people trying to survive a pandemic? And, you know, I'm I'm by no means an expert, but I would say Mm -hmm. before the Affordable Care Act was instituted, there were a lot of real problems with with the insurance market and with healthcare coverage in general. People could be denied healthcare because they had pre-existing conditions. You know, there are millions of people now, as there were then, who could have qualifying pre-existing conditions that would keep them from getting health insurance under the old rules. There really was not much of an option to get health care outside of either the employer-based health care system or the public system, which is Medicare or Medicaid. And many people don't qualify for that because you have to you know, have certain, your income has to be under certain limits and stuff. And so there were definitely a lot of problems and a lot of gaps. And the Affordable Care Act was something that a 
people initially saw as a movement towards universal health care, but it really was never going to get there because the process was always just way too, too much controlled by these private companies. You know, they give too much mm-hmm. money to politicians and the politicians do what they want. But, you know, I will say with the Affordable Care Act, it did improve things a lot. In one sense, it's easier to get insurance now as an individual uh, because you can go to these marketplaces which exist. And even though they've been kind of a fiasco in the beginning, you know, they, they do still exist, at least for the time being. You know, it set it up initially so that everybody, every individual person would be mandated to show that they had health care. And the reason for that was because, you know, if you're going to have a healthcare system where everybody is paying in in order to distribute the costs, as they were, as we were trying to develop a system in which everybody got and was able to get the coverage that they needed, it was necessary to have enough money to be able to do that. And since it was a mandate, since it was sort of on each individual to figure out how they were going to get covered, it was important to make sure that a lot of individual people who were younger and healthier did actually seek out coverage, even mm-hmm. if they didn't think they needed it, because otherwise, like, right. it just makes the whole thing way more expensive because the only people that get insurance are the people that, mm-hmm. that really, really need expensive healthcare treatments. And, you know, there were, and I guess there still are tax subsidies for people who uh, are getting into the marketplace, but maybe financially, you know, are having a lot of trouble with it. You know, so it's, and, and there's good things about the Affordable Care Act. It, it does allow, you know, there is no disqualification for pre-existing conditions. It does cover dependent children up to age 26. I benefited oh, yeah. from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, so there are some good aspects to it, but ultimately it just doesn't do enough. It, it doesn't really guarantee that people can afford to have health care or that people that buy health care plans can afford to use them. You know, if you actually look mm-hmm. at the marketplace, the, the health care plans that are offered through Obamacare, many of them, like unless you buy the most expensive ones, most of them have a deductible, which is a significant amount of money. And that's basically money, thousands of dollars that you have to pay every year before your insurance even kicks in. They won't even start to cover mm-hmm. anything until, yeah. you know, for, for many plans, it's like over $6,000 in Hawaii. I was just looking the other day. Even then, even once you meet the deductible, there are a lot of other things. There are a lot of other costs that even if you have insurance, you're still responsible for, you know, the cost of doctor's visits, the cost of drugs. There's always some co-payment for the most Mm -hmm. part or a co-insurance, which is like a co-payment, but it's just a percentage instead of a dollar amount. That's kind of where the Affordable Care Act has gone. Of course, now it looks like the Affordable Care Act may just be completely nixed. The Supreme Court is likely to take it up after the election, they're basically going to try to invalidate the whole thing. It's difficult because we're stuck with this thing of like trying to defend this plan, which really is not perfect and really does still work to the benefit of a lot of insurance companies. And, you know, all these same players are still making a lot of money off of the, even with the Affordable Care Act, because they were able to Mm -hmm. get their lobbyists in there and help write the, the actual rules and regulations. And then as far as Medicare for all, I mean, like you said, we're one of the only, one of the only industrialized countries that doesn't have some form of universal health care, but, but we do have Medicare and Medicare has been a, a decent system for people, you know, up, up until now it's applied to people over age 65. You know, the idea is that that could be expanded out so that everybody has coverage. It would actually potentially save a lot of money because it would allow the government to do things to, to basically stop a lot of the things that are cause prices to shoot up. 
you know, for instance, there's a lot of money that's spent on on all these costs that insurers. Yeah, so Medicare for all would basically work where, you know, the government would or some entity would be able to pay standard amounts to care providers and drug companies for the care, for the services and for the products that we need for healthcare. That would actually give the government a lot more bargaining power for one thing. If they had the entire market, they could basically have a lot more sway over drug companies in terms of pricing. Drug companies can choose not to sell their drugs at a certain price, but you know, the government can also choose not to buy them if they're being marked up way too much. And that is a lot of the cost. But then the other thing I think is just access to care. Like Medicare for all would would take away the incentives that a lot of like providers have to only operate the most profitable segments of their business and only to operate in the most profitable areas. You know, there are so many remote locations, rural communities, especially here in Hawaii, but really everywhere uh, where people are just totally underserved. They just don't have access to healthcare. They mm-hmm. have to drive for an hour to get to a hospital. And so it would allow for those kinds of problems to be addressed a little bit better than what they are now, because you just can't address stuff like that in a private market. All right. And I got to ask you this question because we are an environmental justice podcast. <laughs> How is healthcare an environmental justice issue? You know, a lot of people think about healthcare as something that is just contained in, you know, the system of doctors and hospitals and, and you know, who you go to when you get sick. But the truth is, healthcare is really a lot more expansive than that it really does impact and is impacted by every aspect of the environment we live in. Whether you live in a community where the water is safe to drink versus one where the water is contaminated with lead or or industrial byproducts, whether you have safety on the job or not, whether you can afford healthy food Mm -hmm. and also, you know, who's actually regulating your food to make sure that it's healthy, to make sure that it's safe. All of these things are completely impacted by you know, the regions in which people live and the environment that we live in. A very poignant example, of course, is these, these wildfires that are going on in California, you know, because they just, right. I mean, it's very obvious that they're destroying the air quality for people living in, even in cities. You know, that's a problem that people are facing all around the world in industrial areas and other just highly polluted areas. And so, you know, having all of those yeah. things in the environment really affects our ability to remain healthy, even if we do the best that we can, you know, even if we try to live the healthiest lifestyle we can and exercise and everything, you know, if we're ingesting lead in the water we drink, we're just not going to be able to, to maintain our health. Right. Or like if you have to, if you have access to healthcare, but you have to go to a job that puts you in like direct risk of, you know, getting COVID, for yeah, example. Yeah, <laughs> And many people, there are those kinds of risks, um, especially right now. There are a lot of risks mm-hmm. with, you know, work-related injuries. Just, you know, of course, we, we deal in our union with a lot of injuries that housekeepers get just from years and years of doing the same yeah. operations over and over again that are bad for your back or bad for your hands. Yeah, so all of those things kind of feed into the, the whole system. Um. We've also been trying to think through like environmental justice is it looks at questions of power and obviously power in the society we live in is often defined by capitalism. So 
how does capitalism and the wealth disparity contribute to health disparities and vice versa? That's a good question. I, I think it really tends to be people who live in lower income communities, people who are lower income, tend to be exposed to a lot more health risks for many reasons. I mean, some of the ones I just talked about, but mm -hmm. being exposed to industrial chemicals on the job, it disproportionately affects people who are working class. So that's, but that's one side. But the other side, of course, is, is access to care. You know, a lot of aren't even getting the health care that they need because they just don't have the money. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't go and see their primary doctor, you know, just for a regular checkup because they can't afford to. And so those sorts of things, uh, are important. It's important for people to get primary care because then they can catch things that, that might become much bigger problems later on. In fact, there is now like a 10 to 15 year difference in life expectancy between the richest people in this country and the poorest. It's crazy. <laughs> and, yeah. and of course, other disparities wow. exist also based on class, based on race, based on sex and gender. Yeah. 15 years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of unbelievable. <laughs> it's wild. But really is true. People who can afford the best health care in the world are happy to, you know, take advantage of that. But mm -hmm. for everybody else, life expectancy is, is not increasing. I feel like it's a little bit unfair to ask you this question because I know you're not a policy expert. Um, but I wanted to ask what socialized health care could look like for workers. You know, what Medicare for all could mean for somebody listening to this podcast, because it can get really hard to envision something that seems so distant and so shrouded in political speak. And healthcare is already so confusing. Even for me, I lived in Australia and I got to experience a universal healthcare system. And when I moved back, it was easier for me to buy travel insurance from Australia than to figure out how to get covered here. So what could Medicare for all look like on the ground in our everyday lives? Of course, I mean, I'd be really interested in your experience in Australia. Sure. <laughs> Did you have a lot of like interact, interaction with the healthcare system there? Actually, I, I had only gotten permanent residency in the last year that I was there. And during that time, I only needed, I think I had like an ear infection once. But essentially, you can go to a huge range of essential like hospital care. All of that's free. The only thing that wasn't covered was like ambulance. So you could you could purchase additional ambulance coverage from a private insurer for $500. There were holes in it, like you dental wasn't covered under public health insurance and that kind of thing. But it just meant that nobody I knew had to worry about paying for anything that was critical to their health. Um, and, and also even some things that were really impressive to me were mental health was covered. So you could get a mental health care plan from your primary physician and then you would get like I think, 12 um, therapy sessions to support you in your mental health care plan, which are things that seem so essential yeah. now, too, during a pandemic, you know, that I that I sometimes feel sad that I feel like we those are things that we don't even know that we can demand from our government. <laughs> but people in other places yeah. do. And they, and they yeah, get it. And I think that's exactly indicative of the sort of things that we would hope to be able to see if we did have Medicare for all. I mean, if people mm -hmm. were able to start seeing healthcare as a fundamental human right instead of just a benefit that you get if 
your employer happens to offer it. And if you're not an independent contractor and if you happen to be able to afford Mm -hmm. a plan that covers your whole family, just to be able to go in and and know that your healthcare needs can be taken care of, it would Mm -hmm. benefit a lot of people. I mean, like I said, there's a lot of people that are not going to the doctor now, especially now with the pandemic. But even besides the concerns about getting sick, it's like there's just the cost concerns that have kept people from going to the doctor yeah. for checkups, for routine vaccinations and other other care that they really need. And ultimately, they're either just not getting the care or they're rationing it out. You know, I've heard of people trying to ration medications. Yeah because they just can't afford the refills, all of those things. And that ultimately leads to worse health outcomes for everybody. It leads to a lot of stress Mm -hmm. and a lot of worry for individuals and for families. But it's also a larger social thing. I mean, you know, the U.S. spends like twice what Canada spends per capita on healthcare. It's like 18% of our gross domestic product that we spend on healthcare. And so per person per year, it's like, I think they say almost $11,000. Two thirds of that is actually funded by tax money. And that tax funded piece alone is more than any other single payer nation spends in public and private dollars on healthcare. So like Canada's system, for instance, costs about $5,200 per person. And ours costs $11,000 when... Most people aren't even able to, or not most people, but so many people aren't even able to access it. It's really crazy how out of whack the whole thing is. But it really does go back to speak to the power of of these corporations that have lobbied to prevent real reform from happening. The ability to get universal health care in countries like Australia or Canada or the UK has been one of the biggest achievements of the 20th century, I think, just in terms of changes that have helped societies, you know, and I think that's something that they could really, you know, it could help our life expectancy. It could reduce costs. That savings could be used to do public research on drugs and remedies and cures for things that we really need instead of just drug companies trying to figure out how to change the, the formula for a particular drug so that they can patent it again and sell it for 10 times the price. Yeah, right. Uh, And it would also prevent like a duplication of care too. Like that's the other thing. A lot of, you know, I mean, there are a lot of places where there isn't access to care, but then there's also a lot of places where the care is duplicated. Equipment that's not really being used because one private healthcare system wants to compete with another private healthcare system and try to put it out of business. And all of that stuff is just, wasteful overall and it could it could all be solved you know not right away and not without fights you know i know that countries that have universal health care still continue to have to fight against lobbying by corporations in those countries to take away the things that they want you know you mentioned about the dental i think that used to be covered at one point actually i don't know about australia but i think in the uk anyway it was and that was one of the things that got taken away so it's 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 an ongoing struggle, but... Right. I mean, they don't... The corporations yep. <laughs> don't stop just because you want. But 
you it really is incredibly stressful for families to have to deal with this system that is so complicated and has so many different actors with their own motivations and try to come out with a good result. And mm-hmm. then there's also just, mm-hmm. I mean, just the cost of it. I think in the U.S., the number one cause of bankruptcies is is medical bills. And it shouldn't be something that bankrupts people or something that people have to worry about. You know, am I going to lose my, my shelter, my home, yeah. you know, just because I got cancer mm-hmm. or something else. Okay. This question. So I've, I've only met you a couple of times. I don't know much about you, but I did since we're talking about mental health and we like to think of, we like to get to know our guests. I, I really wanted to ask, um, because you're a researcher and you have to really dig into these issues all the time. You have to you ha- you ha- you just dropped so many statistics that <laughs> made me really depressed just in the last hour, um, and even me, I I find that sometimes I need to switch off the news, but it's kind of your job to stay right in the middle of all of it. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about how knowledge is so crucial to our collective empowerment. Um, to you know, in in your case, to local fives' ability to serve its um, workers and to fight for collective power, um, but how knowledge can also be very overwhelming. So, how do you navigate that balance? How can we all learn to navigate that balance, especially in a time when <sighs> it seems like <laughs> yeah, everything well, sucks? I mean, I think that's that that question is particularly important right now because we really do need to be looking at how events are unfolding and trying to understand the motivating forces behind them so we can get a clearer picture of reality and, and, and build our own strategy, the strategy of the left. And it is important and it's, it's always good to be able to ask who benefits from things being the way they are or the way that they're proposed to be. So I do find that it's really important for me and, and, and generally for people to, to get an understanding of what's going on. But yeah, it can be very distressing, especially right now. I would suggest what my therapist suggested to me, which is to try to limit the time frame in which you read or watch or engage with the news each day. You know, more and more that includes social networking too, because a lot of People, myself included, post a lot of articles on on Facebook and stuff. But yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. honestly, I think as far as mental health, there's a lot of, I mean, I'm a real believer in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of like about practical techniques for recognizing your own thought distortions and addressing them. But, you know, that's not to say that anybody Mm -hmm. who's depressed, especially right now, is, is distorted in some way or, you know, that there's anything wrong with having some anxiety or sense of hopelessness about the future. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there's a lot that can be that can be helpful in some of those techniques. But also, you know, I, I really am lucky to be able to be involved with Local 5. And I do think that getting involved in organizations that are fighting for the things that you believe in is important during these times. It's not easy, but at least you're, you feel like you're doing something and you're you're, you're building towards a power, collective power that, that actually has more of an ability to, to take on some of these bigger problems. Yeah, yeah. kind of helps combat the hopelessness. Yeah, but you know. Or I mean, helplessness too. I guess it's, I, I'm, I'm not the best one to speak, but you know, to not being depressed, but uh, I would say a lot of it is about <laughs> trying to understand what you can and can't control and thinking about whether worrying about something is going to affect the outcome of that thing or if anything you could do would reasonably affect the outcome i don't know it's it's hard it's a hard time 
It is. It's, that's a yeah, skill we're sure. probably all working on in 2020. <laughs> Oof, it's been a rough one. <laughs> and, it's, and we say 2020 <laughs> like it's going to be better in 2021. Who yes. <laughs> I mean, when you live in a country where there's basically the equivalent of a Jonestown massacre happening every single day, it's like it's hard to uh, mm. be real optimistic about stuff. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really helpful for me talking with, I don't know, people who I know are out there fighting for all of us. Well, thanks. I consider you to be one of them. <laughs> thanks for being in the trenches. And thanks for sharing so much about something that's really confusing for me and I know for a lot of other people out there I well thanks I hope I hope this is helpful for folks <laughs> cool is there any I don't know any last thoughts um, you wanted to share before we go I don't know I, I guess uh you know I, I guess the one thing that I would say is when I was thinking about you know doing this program and and talking about healthcare, I really got to thinking about how the healthcare system and the problems with the healthcare system are so similar to the problems with so many other systems that we deal with. You know, I talked a little bit about it before with, you know, the environment affects our, our quality of healthcare and vice versa. It really is true that, you know, in every aspect of our lives and every aspect of our society, there are, you know, forces, the forces of capitalism, which are pushing for profits and really have no regard for anything other than profit. And so I think, you know, the more we can look at that and, and look at how to, to change that, uh, the better off we'll be. And, and in some ways, I think would require a whole systemic change. I mean, hopefully we can institute something like Medicare for all. Yeah. Um, and I think that would be really good. But like I say, it's still going to be attacked unless and until we have, you know, a better society all around. So it's all it's all part of the same fight, mm. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, true. And how do we get to a better society like through the fight? That's how we figure out how to be better yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. Just by fighting and trying. Cool. Well, thank you so much for that. Right. Um, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. <laughs> well, thank you. It was a pleasure having Ugh. you. Thanks so much. All right, I spent this whole episode talking about how complicated the healthcare system seems, but I changed my mind. In fact, once you have an understanding of the exploitative dynamics of capitalism, then it's pretty simple. Capitalism will always try to profit from our basic human needs. And if we're going to make sure that everyone's needs are met equitably and justly, we got to start dismantling it. That means fighting to take back control of our healthcare system from private corporations and treating healthcare as a public good. A big mahalo to Ben for sharing so much of his time and knowledge and to all of you for listening. If you've lost your coverage during the pandemic, the Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs is encouraging the public to enroll through the healthcare.gov website. Stay safe out there and stay rooted.